The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Morning, IBC. My name is Sissy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Happy Palm Sunday. And a special shout out to our students who, as Barry said, they've been serving our city all weekend and they're here today, and it's so much better when you're in the room. So, so glad you're here. As Barry mentioned, we're in our final week of this series that we've entitled The Story of Us, where we have been looking at Israel's story as a mirror for our own story. And as we look at Israel from exodus to exile, we see this pattern in their story that results in their downfall. And it's the very same pattern that results in our downfall. And so it begins with forgetfulness, a failure to remember God's faithfulness and mercy in our lives. Which causes us to live with a sense of autonomy, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And that leads us to give in to the indulgence of our base desires. And then like Israel, we're prone to idolatry, trusting in things other than God to satisfy us. We fail to love God, so we fail to love our neighbor. And as a result, we commit acts of injustice. And so this morning, that brings us to this subject of emptiness. Because as we get pulled further and further into this downward spiral, on the outside, our lives can look good. But deep inside, we're empty. And we cover it up with this facade of religious performance. And we see this in the world around us, don't we? We see it in documentaries like Hillsong, a megachurch exposed, or... Podcasts like the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We see it in the downfall of popular pastors, preachers, politicians, and celebrities. People who on the outside, their lives look good, but then we find out deep inside they're entangled in sin. On the outside, they look like they have it all together, but their sin is covered over by this facade of religious performance. And it leaves us feeling disappointed and disillusioned but it's not just pastors preachers and celebrities is it if we're really honest with ourselves it's us as well that we can live like on the outside our lives look good but deep inside we're empty maybe there's even some things that are going on in our lives that we know aren't in line with God's good desires for us and we cover it over with the veneer of religious performance. We go to church every week. We're in Bible study. We're in a formation group. We're in men's ministry and women's ministry. We serve. Our social media feeds display to the world these picture-perfect lives. We look like we have it all together. But deep inside, we're empty. Life feels meaningless and purposeless. There's no real connection to God, no life, no vitality. It's all a facade. It's pretense. It's not just Israel's story, is it? It's not just pastors, preachers, and celebrities, is it? It's our story as well. So why do we settle for this empty veneer of religious performance? And how do we rid ourselves of this emptiness? 
so that we might live out of the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. This morning, I want to take a look at two scenes from Israel's story. Now, the first scene takes place in 608 BC during the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And in this scene, we'll see the problem of emptiness and the reason for it. The second scene takes place about 630 years later. It's Palm Sunday, and Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. And as we look at this scene, what we'll learn is that if we want to rid ourselves of this emptiness, we must see Jesus for all that he is. Because unless we see Jesus for all that he is, we will perpetually be stuck in this cycle of despair. And deep inside, we will be empty. So, Let's take a look. Scene one is found in Jeremiah 7. If you have your Bibles, grab them. That's where we're going to start. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet who served during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been taken into exile by the Assyrians about 114 years earlier. And so Jeremiah's message comes between the fall of the Assyrian empire and the rise of the Babylonian empire. So it's a politically unstable time in Judah's history. Assyria has fallen, and Babylon and Egypt are vying for power. And Judah is stuck right in the middle. And so Jeremiah preaches this message of judgment to warn them about the consequences of breaking their covenant with God. Because their lives are marked by these twin sins of idolatry and injustice. And God will have none of it. And so God tells Jeremiah to go stand at the temple gates during a time of a great festival where people are streaming into the temple. And here's the message that Jeremiah proclaims from God. Jeremiah 7, 3. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There was a popular belief during this time that the temple was sort of a good luck charm. The people believed that the temple was a guarantee of God's presence and and protection despite their disobedience. They knew that God had made a promise to David that his throne and his kingdom would, would be established forever. And they recognized that they had been spared the devastating fate of the northern kingdom. And so they thought they were safe. The temple became a false guarantee of God's protective power. They trusted in the temple and in their rituals more than they trusted in God. Verse 5. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm. Then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. They think that because they're going to the temple, going through the motions of all their religious activity and rituals, that they can live however they want. In the last couple weeks, we've seen this pattern in Israel's story of idolatry and injustice. And here we see it again. They act unjustly by not caring for the refugee, the immigrant, the the orphan, the widow. And they commit idolatry by following after other gods. Verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? 
And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. They steal, kill, commit sexual sin. They worship false gods. But they kept up appearances because they're going to the temple. And so they think they're okay. We're safe. And God says, you're not safe to commit sin. Your lives may look good on the outside, but I have been watching and I know what you're doing and I will have none of it. Reform your ways. Repent and turn from your sin. Give up this facade of religious performance and turn back to me. Now, why do they do this? How could they ever think that because they're going through the motions of all their religious rituals, they could live however they want? The better question is, why do we do this? Why do we think that that just because our lives look good on the outside that we can hide our sin from God? Why do we think we can cover up our emptiness with this veneer of religious performance? In his book, The Deeper Journey, Robert Mulholland says that there are two primary ways we live. We either trust in ourselves or we trust in God. Another way to describe this is the idea of the false self and the true self. The false self is the self turned inward that lives out of its wounds and insecurities. The false self is fearful, possessive, manipulative, self-promoting, indulgent, idolatrous, unjust, and empty. But the true self is the person that God has always designed and intended you to be. Your deepest, truest sense of yourself Your fullest purpose, your value is found in a deep and abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus. And when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves. He's talking about the false self. But there's a particular aspect of the false self that's even more dangerous, even more subtle. And that's the religious false self. The religious false self assumes that because we're doing all these things for Jesus... Everything's fine with our relationship with God. We're busy for Jesus, doing all the right things, saying all the right things, but our lives are not grounded in a deep and abiding relationship with him. We don't see Jesus for all that he is. And one of the best examples of this are the Pharisees. Jesus describes them as whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead people's bones. And these are the religious elite. They're doing all the right things, saying all the right things. They know the law. They follow the law. But their outward acts of religion are all about them. And they're not centered on God. The religious false self attempts to have God in their life on their own terms. We begin playing God. And we become our own gods. We want a little bit of Jesus, but just enough so that he doesn't mess up our plans. And so that we can live however we want. And satisfy our own selfish desires. We want a God so small that he can be controlled. And this is not the God of the Bible. And the really dangerous thing about this is we can begin with an authentic experience with God. But then suddenly over time we start living out of our religious false self. We think that we can control God and our lives and ultimately it ends in our ruin and destruction. Okay, 
That's a whole lot of bad news. Happy Palm Sunday. But stay with me. Good news is coming. Let's take a look at scene two. Mark 11. Now, this is some 600 years later. And Israel really hasn't changed all that much. It's Palm Sunday. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. But a few miles before he gets to the city, he tells his disciples, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. Now, typically, kings rode into a city after a great battle or after their coronation or after they had conquered the city. And so the disciples hear this and they're excited. Like Peter's elbowing John. He's like, this is it. This is our moment. The Messiah is going to reveal himself to everyone. He's going to show Israel who he is. He's going to overthrow the tyranny of Rome and save us. And then Jesus says, go to this village and bring me this colt. I'm not going to walk in. I'm going to ride in, not on a powerful stallion, but on a baby colt. And the disciples must have been like, wait a minute, Jesus. This is not how this is supposed to happen. You're a powerful king. This is not what kings do. But for Jesus, his strength is displayed through weakness. His power is demonstrated through vulnerability. Mark 11, verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The streets are flooded with people who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus rides in on this baby colt. And they line the streets with their cloaks and their branches. And they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, Lord. They hail him as king. And Jesus says, I come not to save you from the tyranny of Rome. I come to save you from the tyranny of sin. And I come in a power that that you do not understand. I come to save and to serve. And I come in humility to be your ultimate sacrifice. I come to die so that you might live. And he enters into Jerusalem and he goes directly to the temple. And as soon as he walks in, he must have seen these large crowds of people buying and selling animals, exchanging currencies. Because again, thousands of people have come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so many of them have traveled great distances. They can't bring animals with them for sacrifice. So they would get to the temple and they would exchange money and they would buy an animal to offer a sacrifice. But these merchants are charging excessive prices for these animals. There was an appearance of religion, but in reality, they're corrupt thieves. And it's late. So then Jesus heads into Bethany to spend the night. Verse 12. Next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. What's going on? Like, is Jesus hangry? Did he not, did he skip breakfast, not get his coffee? Like, surely he might have been able to grab a protein bar or something. (laughs) Jesus isn't hangry. As the leaves of a fig tree were starting to bud in the spring, before the figs came, uh, the branches would sprout these tiny nodules that were good to eat. The travelers would pick off on their journey. 
So if you saw a fig tree that had leaves but had no fruit, you would know that something was wrong. From a distance, it looks good because it has all these leaves. But if it had no fruit, it was diseased or dying. It was empty. The fig tree was a metaphor for Israel and for those who claim to be God's people but bear no fruit. And Jesus is on his way back to the temple where the night before he saw all this busyness, all this activity, but it was all for show. Nobody was praying, nobody was worshiping. And while it looked good on the outside, there was no vitality, no life to it. Friends, Jesus wants so much more than our busyness and our religious activity. What he's after is your heart. The kind of deep inner change that only results from an abiding relationship with him. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In John's account of this scene, we read that Jesus made a whip. Like he didn't find a whip. He was so angry, he made a whip. And he drives out the money changers and sellers. He overturns the furniture. He acts like he owns the place. Now, many of you know that I am from New Jersey. And whenever I read this scene, I think to myself, Jesus got some Jersey in him. Because this is a scene right out of like a bad reality TV show. What's going on? This isn't gentle and lowly, Jesus. This is, you better get out of my way if you know what's good for you, Jesus. The temple was the place where people met with God. And so Jesus quotes Jeremiah from the scene that we just looked at. And he says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. These people had defiled the temple with their religious activity. That's just a cover for their injustice and sin. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus is loving, but he's also holy. And until we see him for all that he is, we will live out of our religious false self. And we'll settle for this veneer of religious performance and never be rid of the emptiness and the deadness that it brings. This scene shows us two things that we need to understand about Jesus if we're going to see him rightly. Now, number one, Jesus is the final temple who desires relationship and not ritual. The temple was a place where you met with God. Yes, God is everywhere, but we miss the richness of what the temple communicated if we don't see it as the place where people had an encounter with God. Because the overwhelming presence of God dwelt right in the middle of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to meet with God. The temple was the place where people met with God, but it was also the place of sacrifice. Because you couldn't just meet with God however you wanted God is loving, but he's also holy. And that meant that someone had to deal with our sin problem before we came into the presence of God. And so God instituted a sacrificial system. Animal sacrifices were needed because blood was required to atone for the sins of the people. God was holy and sin had to be dealt with. And through the sacrificial system, God makes a way to do that. But the problem was that it was incomplete and ineffective. Because it was never enough. Again and again, they had to make repeated sacrifices so that they could atone for their sins. 
And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he enters a temple, he is saying, I have come to replace this temporary temple. I am the real and final temple. I am God in the flesh. I am the way for you to meet God, to to have a relationship with God. I am the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. The temple only existed to point to me because it's through my life and my death that you can meet with God, that you could be in a relationship with him. And when Jesus dies... The veil of the temple is torn in two, signifying that we now have full access to God. Jesus became the the ultimate sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice for our sins, so that now we have full and complete forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the final temple, and he desires relationship and not ritual. But secondly, Jesus is the rightful king. Who declares his authority over our lives. Jesus rides into Jerusalem as our king. And he displays his kingship in three ways. First of all he's a confronting king. He comes into the temple. He faces off with the money changers and the sellers. He overturns the furniture and he throws them out. He confronts them on their sin. While they may be keeping up appearances of external religion. He sees through to their heart. And he calls them out on their sin. A holy God cannot bear to look at sin. And if Jesus is your king, he will confront you on your sin. Not to shame you, but because he loves you. Because he's a good king and he wants what's best for you. And so he will lovingly confront you on your sin. Maybe the ways that you're trusting in things other than God. Maybe the ways you've been trying to live out of your own self-sufficiency, thinking that you can do things your way. Maybe the ways you're indulging in things to satisfy you rather than God. He's a confronting king. But secondly, he's a transforming king. He doesn't just confront and convict you of your sin. He wants to cleanse you of your sin. And Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. And in the same way, he wants to do that in each one of our lives. He goes after the places of pain and shame. And the things that we, the wounds that we try to hide from everyone else. The sin that we think no one else knows about. And he wants to heal us. He wants to transform us. And only he can. Thirdly, Jesus is an astonishing king. He intentionally rides into Jerusalem on this baby colt. He's both powerful and vulnerable. And in his weakness, he shows himself strong. He does not save himself so that he could save us. He gives up everything so that we could gain everything. And he comes with the kind of power that the world knows nothing about. He comes as our humble king to save and to serve and to be a sacrifice for our sins. This is our king. Tim Keller writes this. Sin is us servants putting ourselves in the place of the rightful king. Salvation is the rightful king putting himself in the place of the servants. Jesus is our rightful king and he declares his authority over our lives. Maybe on the outside your life looks good. But inside you feel empty. And you try to cover it over with the veneer of religious performance. Doing all sorts of things for Jesus. When your life is marked by destructive patterns. Harmful habits. That you've been trying so hard to hide. 
You've been living out of your religious false self, thinking that just because you're doing all these things for Jesus, you're okay. You can live however you want. You've been trying to have God in your life on your own terms, and it's not working because inside you feel dead. You feel empty. There's no real connection to God, no meaning, no purpose, no vitality, no life. Maybe this morning you're tired. Tired of hiding. Tired of pretending. Tired of trying to keep it all together. And listen to me, I have been in that place. I've been in that place where on the outside, my life looked good. But, but suddenly I started living out of my religious false self, thinking that I can control God and get him to do what I wanted. And looking to people and my own accomplishments for my validation, rather than God. And it's an empty, hollow, and exhausting way to live. And in the end, it will destroy you. Maybe right now, you're feeling convicted about destructive patterns, harmful habits in your life. And that's because the king is at work in your life. And he's cleaning house. And he's doing it because he loves you. Because he has so much more for you. And the invitation to you is to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus, to rid yourself of this emptiness so that you might live out of the fullness of life that Jesus longs to give you. Friends, what if this morning we just stopped hiding and we brought our sins to the light of his love? What if this morning we just stopped pretending and we abandoned ourselves to the love of Jesus? Oh, that we would see our king for all that he is. So that we might live out of the fullness of life that he alone can offer us. Oh, that we would see King Jesus. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.